Welcome to A Beggar Who Found Bread. I'm your host, and yes, I am a beggar. This beggar found the bread of life, Messiah Yeshua. And I want others to know where this bread may be found, that it may lead them to their portion of the kingdom, which is to come. This episode, One Thing Leads to Another. Credit the Fix with the title to this episode. Established in the late 70s out of London, England, the Fix initially called themselves Portrait. They changed the name to the Fix with One X as they released their first album, which included one of their most popular songs, Red Skies. Preparing for a second album, their music label really wanted them to change the band name because of the potential correlation to the band name and drug use. I need a fix, gotta get a fix, and so on. Having gotten some traction under the name The Fix with 1X, the band really didn't want to risk losing fans, so a compromise was made. They spelled the name with two X's, and that seemed to fix everything. The Fix still tours today. Their biggest hits, One Thing Leads to Another, Red Skies, and Saved by Zero. Their song, A Letter from Both Sides, was featured in the movie Fletch, which is one of the last times Chevy Chase was actually funny. Though on the show Community, I will confess, his character was funny until you realize that the character he was playing was actually just him being himself. And this is why Fletch 2 was such a disappointment and a disaster, and why he was so convincing on an episode of Law & Order when he played a racist and anti-Semite. Social ignorance, it appears to run deep in Chevy Chase. Alas, this is not about the upcoming Fletch 3, or even the music. It's about the message, one thing leads to another. I think, like most listeners of this program, are pretty familiar with hyperlinks. When you read an article, for an example, on the internet, oftentimes... The text is highlighted in certain areas, usually in blue, but it's highlighted in some way, whether it's the name of an individual or a place or a specific word or phrase. When you click on the highlighted part of the text, it opens more information on that subject. Sometimes it even takes you to another website altogether. While the word hyperlink is modern vernacular, the idea is ancient. Throughout Scripture we see these hyperlinks that lead us from one passage of Scripture to another. The easy ones to identify are those with quotation marks around them as the writer quotes from another text. From that, we can search those words and locate the reference point. Many modern Bibles have footnotes, which even provide cross-reference verses or passages. The Hebrew text, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, the Tanakh, contain many more subtle hyperlinks, more so even than the Brit Hadashah, New Testament writings. In the Hebrew scriptures, when we see specific phrases repeated, and sometimes it's an individual word that is repeated, or even the root of certain words, when we see these things repeated, it is often a hyperlink to a previous portion of Scripture. As a quick example, I'll use the beginning of the book of Jonah 
Now, the guys at The Bible Project did an extensive look into this, and I encourage you to check them out. Great podcast. You can find it on most of the uh, popular podcast platforms, The Bible Project. So here is Jonah chapter 1, and we'll start at verse 1. We'll just do the first two verses. Now the word of Adonai came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Rise, go to the city of go to the great city of Nineveh and call out to her, for their evil has risen before me. Where we see the phrase, the word of Adonai came to Jonah. This can hyperlink us, if you will permit me to use the modern colloquialism. It will connect us to many places. Most often when other prophets are receiving the word of Adonai or even kings, we see that phrase, the word of Adonai came to so-and-so. All the prophets are connected, of course. And initially, as the Hebrew text was being assembled, the prophets were identified a little differently than we do so today. We identify the three major prophets and then the 12 minor prophets. In the Hebrew, they were identified this way. Moses, Joshua, Deborah, Samuel, Elijah, and Elisha were referred to as early or former prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel were simply called the prophets. And the 12 we call the minor prophets, their writings were called the scroll of the 12. The uh, scroll of the 12 because they were all connected when they were when they were uh, assembled when they were found they were all connected all their writings were on the same scroll so it was the scroll of the 12 prophets and then Daniel he kind of stands on his own but to me i see a connection with the three major prophets that we refer to them today and the 12 of the scroll or the minor prophets. And I see a connection in two different directions, forward and backward. We can look back and think of the three, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, followed by the 12 tribes of Israel. And we can look forward to the three, Yeshua, Moses, and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the 12 apostles who followed. I mean, there's so many directions that we can take this, but the point I'd like to stick with is following these connections, hyperlinks, as far back as we can. What we will find is many of these connections take us back to creation, paradise, the garden, or Gan Eden. Because since the fall of mankind, we have been continuously trying to get back to that paradise. It's the great yearning of all mankind, whether one acknowledges it or not. That is the yearning, is to get back to that paradise, that right place in a right relationship with Adonai Elohim, the Lord our God. And in the case of the opening of Jonah's writing, it appears the writer is taking us back to Cain. And now, for us, we have the benefit of having the whole of Scripture, and so we can study and we can look forward to Yeshua and even to the coming kingdom, and we can take and we can look backwards and backtrack, connecting the dots all the way back to creation, 
perfection, the Garden of Eden, paradise. But for now, let's take a look at Genesis 4, and I'll explain some connections here because it appears in Jonah's writing, the writer is taking us back to Cain, making a connection here. So Genesis 4, and let's start at verse 6. Then Adonai said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, it will lift. But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the doorway. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. So the phrases, Adonai said to Cain, and the word of Adonai came to Jonah. These are very similar phrases. And the Hebrew root word for said and the word are the same. They're from the same word, the Hebrew word wehai. So since we have the word of Adonai coming to Jonah and Adonai saying his word to Cain, what is the specific connection between these two? Well, for starters, Adonai spoke to each of them. And if we know the stories and the continued accounts of, the, of each of them, they both disobey. So there is a connection there. And there, there's other connections from Jonah 1 with Cain as well. Now the word of Adonai came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Rise, go to the great city of Nineveh, and call out to her, for their evil has risen before me. The phrase referring to the evil of Nineveh, rising before Adonai, it hyperlinks to the phrase in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, after Cain killed Abel. We read, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So we see a connection of the results of evil as it rises. It cries out before Adonai. Even the mention of the great city Nineveh. There are only two places in the Hebrew scripture where that phrase, the great city, are written. And both refer to Nineveh. The other location is in Genesis, where we read of Nimrod, who established Babel, later to be called Babylon, and the great city Nineveh. Nineveh is a notorious city. And even though they repent when Jonah eventually brings the word of Adonai to them, well, they return to their ways after a time and incur the full wrath of Adonai, turning away from his ways. Also, with reference to a, a city, just a reference to a city, there is a link to Cain, because the first time in Scripture we read of a city is in Genesis chapter 4, after he had killed Abel. In verse 17, we read, Cain began to build a city. And so there are connections with all of these things, and they appear to be very intentional. And I believe firmly that they are intentional throughout the text, connecting of these dots. The writers are purposefully linking what they write to previous writings. In this, also, we can connect Jonah's mention of the evil rising up 
and the cry of Abel's blood, we can link those even to the flood. As we know, things got progressively worse uh, as far as sin goes and the evil ways of man after Cain had killed Abel. It didn't take long. Lamech, Cain's son, killed at least two people. And then things just snowball from there. After the flood, all except Noah and his family were destroyed. When the ark settles on Mount Ararat and everyone exits it, the first thing Noah does is present a burnt offering as a sacrifice to Adonai. We read in Genesis 8, When Adonai smelled the soothing aroma, Adonai said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. Even though the inclination of the heart of humankind is evil from youth, nor will I ever again smite all living creatures as I have done. The aroma of the offering brought to mind to Adonai that mankind is going to continue to sin. Sacrifices and offerings, in many cases, are for the forgiveness of sin. So even though the odor of sin is a stench, of offense to Adonai, the sweet-smelling offerings are still a reminder that mankind is going to continue to sin. And, and notice, after smelling the soothing aroma, Adonai says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, even though the inclination of the heart of humankind is evil from youth. Nor will I ever again smite all living creatures as I have done. All these links, and this is just from the first two verses of Jonah, and I'll give one more example here, but, and there's, there's many more in those first two verses. Then Adonai said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, it will lift, but if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the doorway. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. The phrase its desire is for you, referring to sin's desire for Cain, is the same phrase used in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve sinned. Adonai said to Eve, to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pain from conception to labor. In pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be toward your husband, yet he must rule over you. That sentence has the same phrase, desire will be toward your husband. It's the same as sin's desire for Cain. And Cain must master it to, for his countenance to be lifted. And Adam must master or rule over Eve. So what does all this mean? Because the connection here, there's, there's a negative connotation. Adonai tells Cain, Sin's desire is for him, but he must master it. And he tells Eve, your desire is for your husband, but he must master you. Eve's desire for Adam is not an attraction thing or even a lust thing. It is to act in his role, to usurp and to dominate him. We discussed some of this in the Evil Woman episode. You can check that out when you have time. So what does it mean to master sin? And what does it mean for Adam to master Eve? Adonai spells it out. 
To Cain, he says that if he does well, his countenance will lift. And so for Adam to master or rule Eve, it's the same thing. It is to do well. It is to do what you're supposed to do in that relationship. What you know is right regarding the marital relationship, meaning obey the ways of Adonai. Be who you are supposed to be. Do what you are supposed to do. Had Adam done well initially, he would not have allowed Eve to give in to the tempter and then himself yield to temptation. This isn't about some heavy-handed domination of a man over his wife. And I know some people really don't like the language that's used in Scripture. That's not what it's about. It's not, it's not about heavy-handed domination. It's about doing well for which we have the word of Adonai to teach us. It is about doing well in that relationship because the marital relationship is a picture of our relationship with Adonai Elohim, the Lord, our God. And so as you study the scriptures, particularly the Hebrew texts, but always be looking, look for these hyperlinks and follow them. That, that makes a big difference between reading the scriptures and studying the scriptures. Dig in. Biblehub.com has the Strong's Concordance online, which is a great resource to pursue these things. Uh, and the, the connections are absolutely not coincidental. The whole of scripture is assembled with divine intent and inspiration. And on that Strong's online uh, through the Bible Hub, when you enter a specific passage, a verse, it brings up the Hebrew words and then what, uh, what number in the Strong's Concordance it correlates to. And then it'll tell you where it's used, how many other places that one word is used, and the places it's used with the same context. So it's really helpful in digging in and, and just expanding your study of the word of Adonai. And so we see, so we see these echoes I used the you know the the prophets the the three and the twelve um, as a as a picture and as an echo and many many of these echoes will draw on the similarities in historical accounts, while others have a metaphoric or symbolic connection, and many of them have both. So when we consider wells from which one draws water, there's an amazing connection between the brides of Isaac, Jacob, and Moses that leads us to Yeshua when he meets the Samaritan woman at the well. And you can listen to the Wishing Well episode for a little more study on those echoes. But when you start from Genesis going forward, you see how starting with Isaac, Abraham's son of promise, then to Jacob, who is called Israel, then to Moses, who leads us to Yeshua. We can look back, which the disciples in the same time of Yeshua's earthly ministry would have done. They would have looked back and seeing Yeshua speak with this woman at a well. And what well was it? Jacob's well. Yeah. So Yeshua is speaking with this woman 
at Jacob's well. And the, the imagery, seeing Yeshua at the well, speaking with a woman, would have caused their minds to go back, connecting the dots through Moses, through Jacob, and back to Isaac, Abraham's son of promise. And he is the son of promise through whom would come the Messiah, whom they are standing there looking at in that moment. Additionally, is the metaphoric language. Wells are seen as springs of life, and they also speak to access and supply. We see a consistency of wives being met at a spring of life, a place of access and supply, which should cause us to consider the nature of the marital relationship, certainly. And even, you know, when we look at... um, when we look at metaphoric language, even the bed, the marital bed is a picture. It is symbolic of a place to seek Adonai, to seek Hashem. And then the the act of intimacy, parents cover your kids' ears, the act of sex. It is a metaphoric picture. It is used symbolically as a request for knowledge from Adonai. And you may say that seems a little bit strange. But when you think about it, we read throughout the scripture, when a, when a man lies with his wife, it says, and he knew her. And there are specific places when a woman uh, with David in 1 Kings 1, they, they had a young woman come lie in bed with David And it says, he knew her not, meaning he did not have that relationship with her. He did not get intimate with her. And so to know is used. And so, again, the bed being a picture of a place to seek Adonai and that intimate relationship between a husband and his bride, his wife, as seeking knowledge. So that's more of the metaphoric language. But... Sorry, I got distracted on that one. Um, but there's, there's other things that we can ponder as far as wells go um, and people and people meeting at them because the first account that this happens occurs in Genesis, yes, but it occurs with Hagar and the angel of Adonai meeting her at a well. This is after Abram laid with Hagar, who is... Sarah's handmaid. He did so at Sarai's urging, Abram. He did so. He laid with her. Then when it was learned Hagar had become pregnant, she was with child, Sarai got jealous and ran her out of town. Hagar was despondent. And we read in Genesis 16, the angel of Adonai met her at a well. She is encouraged to return to Sarai by the angel of Adonai. And the well is called Be'er Lahai Rohai, which is translated in English, the well of the living one who sees me. And it was in this place where Hagar made the declaration. She referred to Hashem as Yehovah Rohai, the God who sees. He saw her in her distress. And so here is another picture of a well 
and a relationship established at a well. And there's so much more to uncover in all of this. But the main point I'm trying to make is that as Scripture was revealed progressively moving forward in time, it was designed to take us back, always back to the Torah and so often designed to take us back to creation and the garden, paradise, to which we all yearn to return. As time progresses, we move forward to get back to paradise. We're moving forward to get back. We seek to obtain our portion of paradise that was, which now is paradise which is to come. Our portion of the coming kingdom, Olam Haba, the world which is to come through the Messiah, Yeshua. Another line of thinking to consider in making these connections and seeing the amazing tapestry Hashem has woven together is the overall metaphoric language which is used. Some is very easy to see, and it's quite apparent when we read in the Psalms, we can see that even even. In the recounting of historical accounts, the poetic metaphoric language is present. And there is a consistency in the use of metaphors that we should understand. Even when a writer is presenting an historical account. So let's take a look at Genesis 18, for example. Then Adonai appeared to him at Mamre's large trees while he was sitting in the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes to see, suddenly three men were standing right by him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed down to the ground. Then he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought so you can wash your feet and make yourselves comfortable under the tree. And let me bring a bit of bread so that you can refresh yourselves. Then you can pass on since you have passed by your servant. They said, do just as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, need three measures of fine flour and prepare bread, bread loaves. Then to the herd, Abraham ran and took a young ox, tender and good, and he gave it to the servant who prepared it quickly. Then he took butter and milk and the young ox that he had prepared and set it before them while he was sitting, while he was standing by them under the tree, they ate. So we read this account. And we focus on it, on the, on the events that have happened here. And most often, as you go through this, people will discuss who are the three men. And this leads to conversations of a theophany. Is one of them a pre-incarnate Yeshua, an appearance? Do they represent the triune nature of Adonai Elohim, the Trinity? I mean, if it draws you to thoughts of Adonai's triune nature, I think that's okay, personally. It's my opinion that it is. it was designed for neither of these things. Now, most will say that the three men are angels. And we see in chapter 19 that at least two of them were angels. Not to get too far off topic here, but my understanding of the spiritual hierarchy is there is Yahweh, Elohim, at the top. Then, beneath him, 
the sons of Elohim, sons of God. Beneath them then are the angels. So I don't believe where we read passages that refer to angels or even specifically the angel of Adonai or the angel of the Lord, I don't personally believe that it is Yeshua. And I say this because he is a son of Elohim. In truth, he is the son. He is above all other sons of Elohim. And this is why I don't think any angelic appearance or appearances are actually Yeshua because the angels are below the sons of Elohim. More on that, uh, a little bit more on that in the fall, Goliath fall episode, if you'd like to check that out. But back to Genesis 18, the Genesis 18 account, we read it and it is telling the story of what occurred in this exchange between Abraham and Adonai and then between Abraham and these three men. The passage makes a distinction between Adonai and the three men and you can read through it in its entirety and you will see there's a distinction made. Um, between Adonai and the three men. They, they are not him in a threefold representation here. Now, as we look at this passage, let's consider some metaphoric language. The writer draws us, as, as is done throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the writers will draw us to key focal points for a reason. Yes, they're recording events that have gone on, but they are also drawing us to key focal points for a reason. In verse 1, we read, Adonai appeared to Abraham at the trees of Mamre. Now, in the metaphoric language, trees are seen as sources of knowledge. When it comes to creation, mankind is the most frequently referenced in the scriptures. Second most is trees. And we should note the significance of that point. Trees are seen as sources of knowledge, and they should, when we read of them, they should take us back to the paradise, Gan Eden, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge, the tree of knowledge of the, uh, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. So in this scene, Abraham is among trees, sources of knowledge, when Hashem appears to him. He is at Mamre. The root word for Mamre means bitterness. It should remind us of the bitter waters at Mara. Bitterness, in metaphoric language, is attributed to learning a difficult spiritual lesson. So consider this. When Miriam, or Mary, whose name means bitterness from the sea, Miriam pours expensive myrrh, which has a bittersweet aroma to it, on the head of Messiah Yeshua. A difficult spiritual lesson was being taught. Yes, the act, the event occurred, but there is, in the metaphoric language, there is a lesson being taught. There is a difficult spiritual lesson being taught by Miriam's actions and Yeshua's response. A difficult spiritual lesson was being taught by Yeshua through Miriam. And at this point, the disciples became upset, if you recall, talking about how expensive the myrrh was and how it could have been sold to help the poor. And Yeshua's response is, the poor you will have with you always. Me, you will not have with you always. 
And this is a difficult spiritual lesson for the disciples to learn. And it's still difficult because many, and I'll say the prosperity preachers, love to take that out of context and use it for their own benefit. I'm not going there today. So, But a difficult lesson, was, was a spiritual lesson, was being presented. And if you recall, it is from this point, the lesson was so difficult, it is from this point, Judas seeks to betray Yeshua. And you can listen to the Judas Kiss episode for more information on the betrayer. So we see a historical account which also maintains the metaphoric language. Now let's jump back to Genesis 18. We read that Abraham was sitting in the door of a tent. The word sit uses the root for Shabbat, Sabbath, to cease working, to rest. A tent represents a holy place. It will be in a tent, the tabernacle, which Hashem will dwell among his people. So, Abraham is resting. He has ceased from his work, surrounded by sources of knowledge, in a holy place where Adonai appears to him, bringing a difficult spiritual lesson. The three visitors arrive, and I believe all three to be angels. Now we know, again, at least two of them are by what chapter 19 says. Abraham tells the men to sit under the trees, source of knowledge, while he gets water to wash their feet. This is an act of humility and servitude. He also says that he will get them bread with fine flour. And we know that bread is symbolic of the word of Adonai, which is the life-sustaining product. In fact, all foods have metaphoric meanings. A table is often used to reference as a class setting. And the foods which are served represent what is taught. We then see Abraham bring meat and milk for these three men. Meat is metaphoric for more mature teachings from the scriptures, while milk is considered the simple baby food teachings, if you will. And this we find in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6, where the writer of the letter to the Hebrews desires to leave the milk, the basic teachings, and move on toward meat, more mature teachings, but the people weren't ready for it. The last six episodes of season three go through the milk, the basics, which we should all have as our foundation as followers of the Messiah Yeshua. So here's what we see in Genesis 18. Metaphorically, Abraham is sitting among the sources of knowledge. Remember, he did not have the Torah. He didn't have the written word of Adonai. He received directly from Adonai. So Abraham is sitting there among the sources of knowledge. He rests at the entrance of a holy place under the source, sources of knowledge. Adonai appears to him there with a bitter, difficult spiritual teaching. And that difficult spiritual teaching, that bitterness, if you will, continues uh, through Genesis 18 and then into 19 with what goes on with Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Adonai appears again to him there. He has that, that bitter, difficult spiritual teaching. The three angels appear to Abraham's right. The right hand is the side of power. 
He recognizes them as angels. Man is made below the angels. He humbles himself and provides water for the washing of their feet. He offers them bread, the word of Adonai. He then provides them with milk and meat, explaining to them the simple and the mature teachings he has received from Adonai, expressing his understanding of the word of Adonai. After listening to Abraham's understanding of what he has learned from Adonai, the three men, angels, depart, satisfied with his knowledge. And then again, we see two of them go to Sodom, where Abraham's nephew Lot and his family live. Now, time would fail us to go through all of this, but please see this as a sample, as just a fraction of the mosaic, the tapestry Adonai Elohim has put together. We look at scripture at face value, and yes, we need to. We need to know the literal meanings of things, but we need to look also at these hyperlinks, these connections to the other passages, and we also need to understand the metaphoric language to get the full depth of all that is going on here because there is so much more than face value. And as you study God's word on your own, look for those echoes and look for the metaphoric, the symbolic language that add more layers and depth to what he is teaching us through his word leading us forward to return to paradise, his kingdom, through the Messiah, Yeshua. I want to thank you for your time and just encourage you study to show yourself approved of God and apply these things in your studying and just see what Adonai will open your eyes to as you continue seeking him through his word. I'm simply a beggar. I found the bread of life, Messiah Yeshua, and I want others to know where he may be found. Even as one thing leads to another, may we lead others to a right relationship to Hashem, Adonai Elohim, the Lord our God, through the Messiah Yeshua. Let's go out and give him heaven. And until next time, grace and peace. Chain Shalom to you.